Amen. I hope you still have your Bibles open to Colossians, New Testament book written by Paul to the believers at Colossae. We're looking in the third chapter this morning. We've read the text. Uh, I don't know, again, about your background and your history specifically. I am a Baptist preacher's son. I am a country southern Baptist preacher's son. And uh, I have been exposed to a lot of campgrounds, a lot of camp meetings. I've been exposed to a lot of different pastors, a lot of different preaching through the years. And there was a time, it seems to me, that across at least my exposure to churches in the, in the southern part of the United States, there was a lot of pre- preachers would spend a lot of time talking about things that you can and cannot do, uh, specific behaviors that would be enumerated, and and pastors deeply motivated by a desire to see people walk in obedience, by a desire to see people experience the complete life that God would have you live, they would enumerate sins and they would focus on the prevailing sins of the day or the prevailing sins in the text. And the call would be, don't do these things. Flee these things. And I want you to know that is a biblical message. That is clearly not the primary teaching that we find in most pulpits today. Uh, again, from my personal uh, evaluation. But partly I think that the emphasis was often placed on a list of behaviors that we call sin, that the Bible calls sin. And don't misunderstand me, that the Bible does clearly identify behaviors that we have left behind when we came to Christ. Transgressions of God's law that we have been freed from, that Christ paid the penalty for. Um, and those things that in our text today we see that we must put to death. But the Christian life, of holiness, the Christian life of righteousness, of living free from dominion by sin, it doesn't begin by repentance and faith, being made new in in God's Holy Spirit, being cleansed by God, and then have to be lived out in the strength of our flesh by simply providing our best effort or performing our best. Living free from sin is begun by coming to Christ in repentance and faith and trusting in His completed work. And it continues by being increasingly conformed to the image of Christ, continually being transformed by the renewing of our mind and our hearts into the image of Christ. And it takes place through the ongoing act of beholding the glory of God, being filled with the glory of God, and allowing the glory of God to shine through us. This is what we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul talks about out of glory into glory, as we spend time with faces unveiled before God, in His presence, seeking Him, knowing Him, growing deeper in intimacy with Him. We are transformed. I want you to understand that Christianity is more than just a list of behaviors. Christianity is a relationship that we pursue with our living God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. And what happens is, God changes your desires. The things that you used to love and the things that you used to want to do, you no longer love. You no longer want to do those things. We have a change of power of sufficiency of energy my failure and my inability to live in a way that pleases God is replaced by his life and his power in me as I depend upon him we have a change in behavior there is a difference 
now, as a believer, in the things that I do and that I don't do, from the way it was before I was transformed by Christ and from the way I have used to live. It doesn't mean that we don't... Ex- uh, what I'm not saying is that we should just do away with all lists. The Bible gives us a very clear... We're going to look at a list of five things today in, te- in the text. We must, but the difference is we address them according to God's Word, by the Spirit of God, being cleansed, and in practice being set free from those things. So here's our declaration. We can live free from sin. We can live free from the dominion of sin. We can live free from being imprisoned and enslaved to sin. As a matter of fact, that's what Christ has done. He's made us free. But we have to undertake this, and thus we have the command, mortify, put to death the things that are earthly in you, which was our text today. In Colossians chapter 3, it's a, it's a, a, a very clear passage when you get to chapter 5. Put to, I mean, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he begins with this whole category of things. Now, last week we, we dealt with the, the call to holiness, our desire to pursue holiness. And he has a, three classifications of sin as he goes through this passage. And so today, this is a message on the sin of putting to death the sin of sexual immorality. Now, I have to tell you, it's a little awkward from time to time to talk about sexual morals and sexual immorality in this context. However, what God talks about, we ought to talk about. What God says, we ought to listen to. We ought to learn and we ought to study and put into place This is where God's Word takes us today, and it is essential for us to learn these truths and to understand them and apply them to our life, particularly in the context of contemporary society. We particularly in this area have, as a a culture, cast off all restraint. There was a time, did you know? I don't know, it's been amazing to me. Normally when, when, when a pastor begins a sermon on this topic or a sermon based upon a text like this, you start giving out statistics, and you talk about the good old days. I will tell you there's been sexual sin since there's been man and woman. Okay? But I will tell you that culture and society now has hearkened back to the days of the Roman society, to the days of the Greek society. We went through a period of time where there was at least some sort of cultural export expectation of morality and limits when it comes to sexual behavior, but we're coming back to a place where there is no and where culture says there should not be any limits on those things. And God very clearly speaks to this. And so we need to make sure that we allow God to speak to us in this. And so the, the, the point is, our attention is to flee from sexual immorality. Or another way to put it, the way that, another way that Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians is to glorify God in your body. We should be free to glorify God in our bodies. Here's how he describes it in his letter to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You understand when you came to Christ, we were bought with a price. We no longer belong to ourselves. We now live to please Him. And in this arena particularly, 
the Apostle Paul in the New Testament and the Old Testament identifies this as a particularly important call to holiness. You know when the church at Corinth was established by these Gentile believers and Jewish believers who went to Antioch, when there was uh, persecution in Jerusalem, they went up there and they shared the gospel. And all of a sudden this church was established, Acts chapter 13. We studied this just a few months ago. And it was a pretty exciting time, but the Christians in Jerusalem were like, well, what's going on up there? Are they really doctrinally sound? Is this really a church? And so they sent Barnabas up there, and Barnabas went and got Saul. They came back and they gave a report, and, you know, they were teaching salvation by grace through faith. You don't have to be a Jew to be saved. You don't have to follow Jewish law. You trust totally in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that came back and became kind of an issue. And you see this in Acts chapter 15, the first big church fight. When they sent, they made it abundantly clear. No, they get saved the same way we get saved, the same way everybody gets saved. The only way that God saves is by grace through faith in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then they gave them an exhortation. There's just a few things we ask of you that they said. And the first one was abstain from sexual immorality. It's the first thing on the list. And then he talks about some diet things that they should not do and some other things that they recommend that they not do. Not as a prerequisite for salvation, but because it's so important. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul's writing a letter to the church at Corinth, the, the passage that we just read, he elevates the consequences of sexual immorality. There are consequences to sexual immorality. And so we need to make sure that we understand, by the way, the word in Greek for sexual immorality is porneia. Porneia. And so we need to make sure that we understand what that is and what that looks like. And so for us, when he says to put to death those things, he gives a list, sexual immorality. Okay? It's the very first thing, impurity. We'll start with those two. Then he goes to lust or passions and evil desires. And then he goes to covetousness or greed. Uh, you'll, you'll see that there's a structure to these words in the order that he puts them in. But I, the first thing that we need to do is we need to understand and embrace God's plan for sex. And here's the good news. God does have a plan for sex. Sex is a gift from God in his context. And so to make sure that we have a clear understanding, because nowadays you can't assume that people understand the parameters that our Creator established for us. And, and I do want to say something. We have rules. We have boundaries. We have lines that have been drawn not by somebody who wants to, to keep us from enjoying life, not by somebody who wants to be harmful for us, not by somebody who wants to see us miserable, but by the one who designed us, knows what's best for us, and does this for our good and for our much higher pleasure and much higher joy. And so we have a standard that we follow given to us by a loving God who has our best interest at heart and mind. He loves us. And so here's what Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, just to give us a, a, a very clear statement. He says, Let marriage be held in honor above all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. You guys know what foul, defiled is? To be dirty, to be ruined, to be messed up. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, sexually immoral and adulterous. Adulterous simply meaning someone in a marriage relationship having physical intimacy with someone who is not, part of, not their spouse. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. 
Paul writing, and we'll come back to this passage later in this sermon, says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Even when you go back to Genesis, God created Adam, God created Eve, He put them together. So let me be abundantly clear here, just spell it out. Scripture, again, emphasizes again and again that godly sexual relationships, sexual morality, that which glorifies God in the intimacy that He has designed us for, is when one man and one woman come together in a covenant before him to give their lives to one another, to become one, we call that marriage, and give themselves physically to one another. Sexual relationships outside of that parameter, are outside, they are outside of context, and all the rest of sexual relationships are immoral. Does that surprise anybody here? Do you hear that anywhere but church? I mean, it's pretty serious stuff. It really is. Do you hear that anywhere but church? I have been amazed at what I see in sitcoms and dramas and movies. I, what I read in books, secular books, good books, mysteries and thrillers, uh, what I am exposed to in cartoons and movies. Uh, do you hear that appropriate sexual behaviors between one man and one woman for life? Anywhere but here? And you might. There might be some moral people who for other reasons say, no, that, 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 that is what we hold to high esteem. But it has become societal norm for there to be no limits. Listen to this. Everything outside of that plan is porneia. It's sin. It's sexual immorality. It's breaking God's law. Now, just a few ways to identify this is adultery. Uh, It's sex before marriage. It's promiscuity, sex with multiple partners. It's homosexuality, sex with partners of the same sex or gender. It's incest. It's pedophilia. It's pornography. And the list can and does go on. That's as far as I'm going with it today. Sexual immorality is impurity. And yet we're called to keep honor marriage and that the marriage bed be undefiled. Many of you know the guilt that follows sexual sin. Many of us know the, 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 it seems like, intensity of conviction that follows sexual sin. I believe it's important for us to recognize that because that conviction is to bring us to repentance and cleansing. And here's the good news. We'll deal with this in a little bit. You can be cleansed and you can be freed, but it's best not to go there in the first place. Amen? Best not to go there in the first place. So how do you get clean? How do you remain clean? Well, we want to understand the strategy of sexual sin. And so we want to look at the text. The, the text, again, he begins with, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. His first word, porneia, sexual immorality. Second, impurity. That's the dirt or the, the, the sense of guilt, of filth that comes with it. And then he goes to those things that lead to those actions, those things that lead to those behaviors. Our translation says passion. A lot of translations translate that lust. 
evil desire, passion and evil desire. That's where he goes next in this text. Uh, And that's what's going on before you ever get involved in the acts of sexual immorality. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know where Jesus says the battle takes place? In your mind. The battle takes place in your heart. The, the, the problem that we have, the temptation, the source of temptation that comes in is in our thought life. You remember how Satan tempted Eve in the garden? About tem- we're talking about temptation. You remember how Satan tempted Eve in the garden? Did God truly say? He questions the word of God. That's the very first thing. The second thing, she saw it. Lust of the flesh, that it would be good to taste. Lust of the eyes, pride of life, that she would be as, as knowledgeable as God. So it's attractive to look at. It is pleasing to her body. And it gives her pride. She could grow and be more, or be on an equal footing with God. That's the same way that the temptation takes place, particularly sexual temptation. It takes place by the attraction of the worlds, the lust of the flesh, James tells us, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so how do we guard ourselves against sexual immorality and impurity? Now, on your outline, this should be number two, but it's number three. Somehow, I took point number one and put it in the right place, and I transposed points number two and number three when I sent it to Kendra to have it printed in, in the worship guide. Uh, and so I, I just want you guys to know how skillful I am at operating a computer. Um, it's in there, but what you need to do is to scratch through the number three and put a number two by it, and scratch through the number two and put a three by it. Turn those upside down. But here's the point I want you to write down. I want you to not think. This takes place in the mind. Don't think about sex outside of context. And when I, when I say context, I mean God's context. What did we just say God's context for physical intimacy is? What did we just say God's context for physical intimacy and physical relationships are? In a marriage relationship, one man, one woman together, a marriage relationship and it is fulfilling. I want you to understand, we are accused of a lot of things as believers, but this is God's plan, and it is a great plan. It is fulfilling, and it is exciting, but any time that you begin to think about sex out of that context, any context beyond me and my spouse, uh, then you're opening the door to temptation, and that word lust or passion, and then evil desires. And I want you to know, in the world we live in, there are whole industries that are given specifically to this. The whole pornography industry is given to this. And it is massive. There are more brick and mortar pornography stores than there are McDonald's in the United States of America. Google, sometimes, be careful, but Google sometimes, the prevalence of pornography on the internet. Here's what I got. Every second, 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 28,258 users are watching pornography on the internet. 3 million, no, 
$3,075.64 every second is being spent on pornography on the internet. And 372 people are doing a word search for adult or sex into a search engine. Every second that goes by on average. It's pervasive. I want to tell you, the, the internet has become the Pandora's box as far as temptation opportunity. How many of you have been surfing and doing good things? You've been working or you have been, been uh, researching something and all of a sudden filth shows up on your computer. Has that happened to you? And then you go back and you're like, oh, no, I don't want to go there. You, you, you flee. Only, you don't have to look for it. It will look for you on the internet. And so what it does is it attracts your attention and then it gets your mind working. Oh, and it begins to occupy your thoughts and your thinking. And you open the door to thinking about or considering or desiring physical intimacy or the possibility of physical intimacy outside of the context that God has for us. This is where the battle is fought. Now, pornography largely targets men. Do you know why? Now, it's increasing with women, honestly, statistically. But do you know why it largely targets men? What is the easiest way to arouse a man? How is a, how is a man enticed in this arena? By what he sees. An image. A thought. Men and women are different. Men are stimulated by images or the things that we see. All it takes is the right image. Women are stimulated more by connection, by the right words, the right acts, the right setting, the right touch. You guys know this. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail here. I just want you to make you aware that there are differences. And sometimes we think, oh, this is just a man's problem. This is a sermon that is focused simply on men. I want you to know that... Let me apply this. When Paul said, put to death sexual immorality, put to death impurity that stems, we're talking about impure in this area, arena. When he talks about put to death lust and evil desires, he's not saying I'm talking to teenagers. He's not saying I'm talking to college students. This happens at every age after you know, youth on. This, this happens at every age. Interesting statistics. Do you know where the most frequent interactions of adultery are taking place in today's society? In senior adult communities. This is not limited by age. Right? That doesn't mean it's not taking place elsewhere. It's just increasing significantly there. So there's no limit when we're talking about age. Don't say, well, I'm an old person. This doesn't apply to me. Uh, everyone is attractive to someone. And so this applies across the board. I want you to understand that. But it's not simply a male problem. It is a human problem. Male and female. But we are each responsible for how we respond to the temptations and to the opportunities that are presented to us. Men in Job chapter 31, Job is writing and he's justifying himself. He's, he's justifying himself before God. This is before he comes to the conclusion that he doesn't know as much about God as he thinks he does. But he's justifying himself because he's been accused of sin somewhere. And he says, I, no, no, no. In, in Job 31 verse 1, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? virgin? 
And then uh, put it in the NIV, which makes it just a, a little bit more clear. He says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. This applies to everyone, uh, regardless of your age. Now, this is typically where we get the accusation, where well, you Christians are, y'all just, this is just a hang-up for y'all. Y'all are just repressive. This is just a, a hang-up for y'all. You, y'all just phobic. You got fear issues. Well, that's not the truth. It's just not the truth. What we are saying is that our Creator who designed us and made us, our Creator who saved us and cleansed us, has called us to a standard of holiness and righteousness that makes physical intimacy wonderful in the context that He designed it for and detrimental and harmful in other contexts. So we've looked at sexual immorality, we've looked at impurity, we've looked at the lust that we have to set a guard over our minds and our eyes for, we've looked at the the attraction, the the evil desire that comes, uh, and uh, then he goes to covetousness or greed, depending upon your translation, but that's simply wanting things that do not belong to you, wanting things that are not yours to have. Do you remember the Ten Commandments? Do you remember the commandment about covetousness? You're not to covet your neighbor's house, all right, or his animals, his goods, but you're also not to covet your neighbor's wife. It's desiring something outside of the parameters or outside of the scope that God has desired, that God has designed us to live in. And so the temptation comes through our eyes or it comes through our ears or it comes through what we expose ourselves to. We've got to be cautious about that. I'm going to get more into that in just a, just a second as time permits. But here's the issue. He says you have sexual immorality and impurity, lust, evil desires. Why? Because you want something that is not yours to have. There is a heart of covetousness. There is a heart of greed. A heart that wants to break barriers and cross lines for your own benefit. And the way that you deal with covetousness is by learning contentment. Isn't that great? The way that we deal with covetousness is by learning contentment. So this is number three. Maybe identified as number two on your outline. But this is the third point that I want you to write down. And it is simply that we kill greed. We put to death the covetousness that leads to sexual immorality by learning contentment with my spouse in the context that God has designed for me to have physical intimacy. Okay? And so I want to read a text to you that is poetic and it's poetic language. I invite you to follow along with me. It is... King Solomon, and he's talking to his son, and he's warning his son about the dangers of adultery, about pursuing prostitutes, and he gives him what he should be doing, what he should be desiring. Proverbs chapter 15, verses 15 all the way through 20. I don't know if we ended up with verse 20. In, in our original notes. But Proverbs 5, verses 15 through 20, he tells his son, drink water from your own cistern. I'm not going to take a lot of time to unpack this. I want you to read it and unpack it. Drink water from your own well. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the street? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. 
be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Here's what he's saying. Where is contentment found? Where is safety found? Where is joy found? In, in intimate, physical relationships? It's with your wife, husbands and wives, in committed relationships. I want to make sure that we understand that the way that we, one of the ways that we guard ourselves against sexual immorality against stumbling in this area or falling in this area or failing in this area against the harm that comes as a result of this is we focus upon the relationships that God has for us. That man, that woman that He has placed in our lives and we are to work on our marriages. The tendency is to think that this is a male-directed sermon. Anything that gets us to fantasize about something that we shouldn't have though is the temptation that leads to this, and that applies to both men and women. Whether it's a comedy, a romantic comedy, whether it's a movie, whether it's a book, we have to establish those parameters, make a covenant with our eyes, make a covenant with our minds, to set our spouse and say, this person that God has given to me, this is the person that I'm going to invest my life in, that I'm going to develop appropriate physical intimacy with, that I'm going to pursue and work on. We should be cultivating a good, fulfilling relationship with our spouse. Now, here's the problem with that. We don't realize that this is work. We need to develop the kind of loving, caring, intimate relationship with our spouse that God has called us to. And there's no fulfillment like this. In marriage, the physical intimacy is not used and must not be used as some kind of reward system or some kind of manipulation in relationship. This is an area of our lives that we need to work on specifically. And now I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because the Apostle Paul gives us some very clear parameters here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he talks about the temptation to sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start with verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to start with verse 2. And he says, now, because of the temptation... Well, we'll start with verse 1. Now, concerning the manners about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, which is what they were saying. And by the way, it's what the world says of us. You guys are repressive. You think all sex is bad. That is not true. All right? Not according to God's plan. Here's, what, here's how he opens that up. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you. Why? Because of your lack of self-control. All right. So, here's where we're going with this. And again, sometimes this seems just like an awkward conversation, but it's an important one to have. God has a design for your sexual fulfillment in the context of the husband and the wife that you have right now. The way that we flee sexual immorality is we set a guard over our eyes, we set a guard over our minds so that we don't think 
about sex outside of the context that God has for us. And I'm going to tell you, that's a hard job in this world and in this society. There are TV shows you're not going to be able to watch. There are movies you're not going to be able to go to. There are books that you're going to have to either black out entire passages, tear out chapters, or not read them at all. There are things that you're going to have to do to make sure that you don't open the door for temptation. If you do open the door for temptation, there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and just, who will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You can flee the temptation. You remember the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? Do, do, you, do you remember the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? When there is that temptation, that opportunity, sometimes you just got to leave. You flee. You close, you get up, you walk out, whatever it is. And so you establish that while, meanwhile, learning contentment, growing in the arena that God's given you as a husband and a wife. And physical intimacy is not to be a tool for manipulation. It's not to be viewed as as some sort of award. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see how things go, yes or no. That is not the context. Physical intimacy between a husband and wife is part of the the ingredients of a healthy relationship in the the context of marriage that God has given us to live into. And so you learn contentment, you focus your attention and your heart there, and you work on the marriage that God has given to you. Okay, that makes sense. You find your fulfillment at home. It's what what Solomon told His son, you find your fulfillment at home. You work on that relationship. Now, I always get at this point the question, what if if I don't have a husband? What if I don't have a wife? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses addresses this in the same passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You still have your Bibles open there? Let me turn mine there. We just read that first part of that chapter, that first paragraph where he says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Look at verse 6. Now, it's a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. What is Paul saying there? It's easier if you're all single. All right? But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Do you know that there are some people who are called to singleness? That there are some people who can live single and find their complete contentment and fullness in God's provision for that, and that's a gift that they have? But did you know that that's not what most people are gifted with, and it's not what most people are called to? To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should do what? What's the next phrase? They should marry. Now, is that an oversimplification? (laughs) Oh, yeah, okay, fine. Fine. I should just go find a husband? I I, I should just go find a spouse if I'm I'm single? Uh, can, Can I tell you that according to... This text, and again, uh, many more that focus upon relationships, it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion or to burn with passion. And he goes on and talk about uh, what happens if you're already in a marriage relationship and one spouse is a believer and one spouse is not. He impacts that further. But 
it is appropriate for a single person to desire and to pursue marriage. You know, can I, I don't know. Again, our, our congregation is a small congregation. We're kind of an intimate, close group of, of people. So I don't know that this actually applies to any individual in this church. But can I tell you that in the Christian community as a whole, it does. We've got a generation of young men who are immature and irresponsible and who are not stepping up to, I'm going to be frank here, not stepping up to be men, to get a job, to work, to provide for a spouse, to make a step of commitment where they're no longer just playing games, whether it be video games or playing games in life, and commit their life and their passion to one woman that God's placed in their life, ask them to marry them, and spend their lifetime serving God and nurturing a family. And young men, you've got to step up. And young women, it's okay for you to pray for a husband. Suzanne and I years ago went to a wedding conference and a lady there told a testimony of how her husband had died. She had a young child and she was not given the gift of singleness even as a young widow and she was praying that God would give her a husband. And so she went to the Goodwill and bought a pair of men's pants and put it on the end of her bed and prayed every night God would send somebody who could wear them. (laughs) Can I tell you that if God has given you the gift to be single, rejoice in it. But He's given you the call or the desire to be married. It is fine and right and godly and biblical for you to pursue marriage, to desire it, and to seek for it. Not that you are somehow less if you want a husband. Not that you're somehow less if you want a wife. You are more when you're walking in obedience to what God's called for you. So, But I know that there's a lot more to this study than simply saying, all right, single people, just wait till you get married. Seek for a husband, seek for a wife and then get married. But that is the gist of what's in this passage, and we need to recognize it. Now, when we talk about sexual purity and sexual morality, a lot of times when that becomes a topic of conversation, for those who are believers, there's a sense of guilt that goes along with that. Because at some level, we've wanted something that's not rightfully ours. We've had evil desires, We've had lust that is created in us uh, impurity. And in some cases, it's caused behavior that has stepped across God's standard of immorality, of morality, leading us to immorality. Can I give you good news for what it means to be freed from sin? It means that you can be cleansed and washed and made innocent. In first, you get that, right? Made innocent. In first, Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth. Now, in this first letter that we have recorded to the church at Corinth, he called them out on specific sins. I mean, he just nailed them. He called them out on specific sins. And here's what he said in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve or feel conviction, if I made your heart fall to the pit of your stomach, I made you emotionally distressed with my letter. I don't regret it. For I see that 
that letter grieved you only, though only for a while. As it is, I'm glad, I rejoice, not because you felt that guilt or because you agreed, but because you agreed into repentance. The guilt that we feel from the sin that we have committed should bring us to the place of repentance. What is repentance? It is the command that the Roman army used, the same as our about face. It means you're facing one way, you turn and you face the other direction. He says to them, you felt godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Godly grief, godly conviction leads to repentance. Repentance is, first of all, confession, agreeing with God. It is saying, God, wash me and cleanse me. This was wrong. This has not glorified you. This is porneia. This is impurity. This does not reflect the glory of God in my life. And I ask you to wash me and to cleanse me. And I turn away from this. If it's what I fill my mind up with in the books I read, if it's what I watch when I'm on the computer, if it's an inappropriate relationship or an inappropriate desire that you've been cultivating in some context that is outside of marriage, confess it to God and repent. Turn from it. And what does God do? He washes you. And he cleanses you. Listen to what godly, godly grief does, what godly conviction does. He says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. It protects you. This is not eschatological salvation. This is, it, it saves you from the heartache. It saves you, saves you from the pain. It leads you to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see, the, listen, listen to these words. For see, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. You have earnestness, but also eagerness to be clean, to clear yourselves. Indignation against that which is evil. What fear, what longing, what zeal. And our translation ESV says what punishment. Another way to use that word or to say that word, translate that word, is what desire for justice, desire for what is right, for what is wrong to be done away with and for what is right to take place. Look what God does. What is the next phrase? At every point, you have proven yourself what? Innocent in this matter. That's an unusual word to put in the context of conviction of sin, isn't it? Can I tell you something? I don't care what road you've traveled. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father loves and shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. What does he do? The next verse. He separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. There is cleansing. and There, there, there is hope. I, I talk to people. I know Scott does. He's our, our pastor of biblical counseling. And I talk to people on a regular basis who are guilty of sexual immorality and are suffering the consequences of the devastation that it brings. And after, through God's word, we make clear what sin is and what sins look like and we work our way through the excuses, we work our way through the through the self-justification and the rationalization and you get down to the point of what it means to be sexually clean in a way that glorifies God 
we have the joy of sharing with them that God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten, that God can make you clean and make you new. I was counseling a person several years ago when I was pastoring the deaf church, and they said, I've been married seven times. Seven times. What do I do about wives number one, two, three, four, five, six? <laughs> and I said, they're not your wife anymore. You have a wife now. You start here in this relationship. Do you understand what I'm saying? About being established on the path that God would have you go. And lead. yes, there are consequences. And yes, God is gracious and sometimes he removes those consequences. Sometimes he makes us walk through those things to prove his sufficiency in each and every one of them. But God desires for you to be different than what you see on the TV. He desires for your experience to be different than the people that you hear about and that you see, those who are promiscuous and who are moral and having marital troubles and family problems, hither and yon. We ought to be an example to the world of what marriage, of what a healthy relationship looks like. Amen? Amen. Well, this is kind of an unusual but important message, I think, for us. And so what I want us to do right now is to close the service. Cody's going to lead us in a song, but... Would you take a few minutes just to say, God, search me and try me? And by the way, I don't think you're going to have any trouble acknowledging any time or any place that you cross the boundaries of sexual immorality. And I don't want you to think on them to the point of death or in some sort of downward spiral carrying guilt. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to say, God, I confess, I agree that anything other than what you say is best is sin and I'm guilty and in my agreement I ask you to wash me and cleanse me I acknowledge that Christ's blood on the cross paid the penalty for that sin and that which he died for I no longer want to embrace and I ask you to wash me and cleanse me and I covenant as your child to put that to death in my life I won't go back to that website I won't read those books again. I won't think about this person or that person or this inappropriately anymore. I will not think about sex or desire for that in any context other than the one you've given me as I move forward dependent upon your Holy Spirit. Why? Not because you're denying me things that I want to do, but because I now desire to please you and I trust you to enable me to do that moving forward. You know what happens when you do that? Cleansed. Cleansed. You can, get this, I don't know, this gives great joy to a lot of people. You can be innocent in the matter. You can be innocent in the matter because of what God has done. Father, this is kind of a difficult topic to talk about, but an important one, especially in the world that we live in today. I'm grateful for the shed blood of Christ on the cross. I'm grateful for the love that you give to us. I'm grateful for your design. You're the creator. You're the one who, who determined that we are to enjoy physical intimacy in the context of marriage, one man, one woman, as we walk through life together. And Lord, we mess it up so bad, so many times. 
And yet your grace is sufficient. You wash and you cleanse and you restore and you desire for us to walk in obedience to you for your glory, to walk in obedience to you for our good so we experience what you have in store for us as we live on this earth. And so we take time right now to just say we, we have sinned. And I pray that you'll bring those specific instances that they can be confessed and repented of. And I pray, Father, that you will wash us and cleanse us. That you will restore us. We will be set free, set free indeed. And as we turn and face the other way, if we need to get rid of a computer, if we need to close an account, if we need to, to throw a book in the trash, whatever it is that has been our, our, our failing, if we need to leave a job, if we need to remove ourselves from a relationship, whatever, whatever steps are needful to make us right with you, and to help us focus on the attention that you desire to give to our spouses. I pray that you'll walk us in that and give us the power to be able to do it. Father, for every person that is married here this morning, I pray that you'll give them a hunger and a passion to work on that marriage. That you will help husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That you will help wives to love their husbands and to honor their husbands in the marriage relationship that we will submit to one another as we submit to Christ, that we will walk in the way that you will have us go and that our, our marriages will glorify you and that physical intimacy in marriage we will recognize as an ingredient, not a tool for manipulation, but as an ingredient of growing in a healthy relationship. Father, for those who are not yet married, uh, whether they be single, never married, or whether their spouse has died, or whether they've been through divorce, or they've been through something that has left them single at this point in time, I pray, first of all, Father, that, that they will seek you, and they will seek to find their contentment and fulfillment in you. You are sufficient. There's no question about that. But I also pray, Father, that you'll give them wisdom if you call them to marriage, that you will seek Help them to seek and know how to find those relationships. And I particularly want to pray for young men. I pray that young men will step up. Be the men that you called us to be. To be husbands. To be fathers. To be leaders. To take responsibility. To stop playing around. And stop goofing off. To grow up and get some maturity. What it means to be a godly man. I pray, Father, for the marriages that you have for us in the future. And Father, we pray that in all things, you'll be glorified in us. We're grateful that you promised to cleanse us, to wash us whiter than snow. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.